Those to whom God is not everything are slaves. They may not commit great sins. They may be trying to do what is right. But as long as they serve God, as they like to call it, and do not know him as father, they are slaves. Good slaves, but slaves. One day in his brief time with us on earth, Jesus had a conversation with Jewish people who had begun to follow him. They were already liking what they heard, beginning to become a disciple of Jesus. And he said to them, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And these Jews said, wait, we are descendants of Abraham. We have never been slaves to anyone. This is a serious case of selective memory loss. <laughs> I can think of at least five different owners they had. Pharaoh was only the first. We have not been slaves to anyone, they said. What do you mean telling us we will one day be free? And Jesus said, he who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in the household, but a son has a place there forever. So if the son will set you free, you'll be free indeed. By now, they were a little roiled up, and they said, wait a second. <laughs> Abraham is our father. And you're calling us illegitimate children. And Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, then you would do what Abraham did. But I came telling you the truth and you tried to kill me. That's not what Abraham did. You're right, he said. You are acting like your father, but it isn't Abraham. Wait, they said, we have but one father, and that is God himself. Jesus said, but if God were your father, you would love. I read that this week. A few things came to my mind immediately. And I think they'll help frame the journey from slave to child. One is that it must be possible to be following Jesus, at least initially, and still be a slave. For he said to them, who were already following him, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Two is that whatever freedom is, and however you get it, it is connected to the truth. When you hear the truth, and you soak in the truth, 
then you become free. So it must be that the degree to which I am still a slave, I do not know the truth in that part of my life. And the degree to which I know the truth, I am finally free in that part of my life. It is truth, not experience, that liberates a person. The third observation is that it must be possible to be a slave and all the while think you're free. For they said, we are not slaves to anyone. And Jesus said, but he who sins is a slave to sin. So it's possible that we could have the wrong definition of slavery or a too small definition. And if we do, we'll think ourselves free when, in fact, we are still slaves. Another observation was that whatever freedom is and however you get there, the journey begins with Abraham. They said, we are Abraham's descendants, and so we're not slaves. Jesus never argues with them. He says, you're right, Abraham's descendants are not slaves. The problem is, you're not Abraham's descendants. He is not really your father. So you're acting like your father, but your father is an Abraham. What it means to be a descendant of Abraham is not to have his blood, it's to have his beliefs. Abraham believed, and it was credited as righteousness. And last, whatever it is to be free, it involves love. When I am totally free, when I have God as a father, one of the foremost characteristics in my life is it becomes a life of love. Some of us this morning... I think, have, um, we have been saved and forgiven by Jesus Christ, but I wonder if we have ever truly learned to love him. We were taught to obey But obedience does not always produce love. It's supposed to, but you can get stuck in obedience. And some of you this morning were taught to love God, but it never translated into obedience. But love, when it is real, always obeys. So I'm asking myself, how can a group of people like the Jews who had already started to follow him miss all of this? How can you think that you are free when in fact you're a slave? How can you have the prophets 700, 800 years of sermons in front of you and you not? Well, they had Isaiah's sermons in front of them all the time. Isaiah said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, release the oppressed. They knew those words like, you know, I have a dream. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. They could cite Isaiah in exactly the same way and yet not see that the prisoners Isaiah was talking about was themselves, not somebody else. When Julius Lester was 10 years old, his dad received a large envelope in the mail, had bold letters on it. 
there was a company that was promising to research the Lester family tree and tell them their lineage. Julius, at 10, he said, I was excited to see it until my father acted like he was going to throw it away. He said, Dad, don't you want to know the history of our family? And his dad just said, I don't need nobody to tell me the history of my family. I know where we came from. Our family tree doesn't go any further back than a bill of sale. Lester is not our last name. It's the last name of the family that owned us. Julius said those were some of the most formative words in my life. So in 1963, he headed off to the Library of Congress and started reading interviews done with ex-slaves in the 1930s. He compiled his interviews, his stories, looking for his own family history. He came across the stories of different slaves from the 1800s. He arranged them around themes in order to show us that slavery was not what we thought it was in American history. There were currents underneath it that were carrying every living thing along. Of all of the stories that Lester tells in his book, To Be a Slave Too, that strike me the most are stories of slaves who were free, but they never heard about it. They were in the South, and so their owners never told them. In some states, it was against the law to teach slaves to read. They knew then that an educated mass could revolt, so they kept them ignorant. And so months and sometimes years after Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, it went into law January 1, 1863, they kept them in complete silence. In the state of Texas, they celebrate to this day a thing called Juneteenth. You might have heard of it. It's the time in 1863 when 2,000 federal troops from the north embarked and landed in Galveston, Texas in order to take over the city and enforce the emancipation that Lincoln had given. When they got there, they noticed slaves still working out in the fields. And when they said, what are you doing? They said, we're doing what we've always done. You've not heard? Heard what? The president has signed your release. So the following morning, he stood up on top of a balcony in Galveston, Texas, and read General Order Number 3. And in the presence of all those slaves, he stated an edict from the president of the United States that all of the slaves in the state of Texas were now free. Their relationship with their masters from this day forward shall be the relationship of a worker to a boss, paid fair wages. Can you imagine hearing for the first time that your fate was not what you thought it was? The other problem in the stories are those uh, who knew that they were free but they went back. They could have left, but they went back because they could not imagine a life other than the one they had because the one they had, while it was not good, at least made sense. There were boundaries. We knew who we were and we knew who the white people were. And as long as we knew the boundaries, we could 
function. We knew our place. We could not imagine living in some other place all on our own. And so as the South began to crumble and the owners began to lose their slaves and then their land, they took drastic measures. One owner sent a slave, Josiah Henson, north with a cohort of other slaves, told them to hide them in northern part of Kentucky until the trouble with politics was over, then I'll come up and get them. When Josiah took his fellow slaves to the Ohio River, which was the boundary of freedom, they put a raft and floated across the Ohio River. When they embarked on the other side, they were officially free. More than half of the slaves on the raft disembarked. They turned and told Josiah, come with us. He refused. This is what he said. He said, I am the property of my owner. If I will ever be free, I will buy my freedom. I'll earn it. For me to leave my owner, he said, is the equivalent of stealing his property. I'm too decent a man for that. These are troubling stories, aren't they? Some who could have left, but they never heard. And some who heard, but they never left. When I read story after story in different books on our history and slavery, a few things came to mind which will frame the rest of this discussion. One of them, and you should know this, is that slavery is an idea. It's a social disease. It is not just a chapter in American history. It has many expressions. The one that you find repulsive is the expression in American history, but it goes back thousands of years, and it is built on the premise of defying a person's image as a reflection of God. Slavery is built on the idea that a person is reduced to their function. They are nothing more than what they can do for us. And so slavery is entrenched in whole systems. Good people, mothers, preachers, politicians, bosses, friends are all caught in a current that is pulled by the assumptions of slavery and the current is so deep and so pervasive in society that everyone you know is pulled in the same current. Everything they say comes from those assumptions. Even when they speak of freedom, they speak of freedom as slaves. 
Slavery is not chains and shackles. It's boundaries. It's roles. It's your place in the order of things. It's identity. It's power. That's what it is. And so you can have a tremendous amount of freedom inside of your slavery. One story a guy said, I told my boss, I told my owner, I was too tired to work. Could I retire? I was like, what? You can retire as a slave? Well, it turns out you could. The boss said, sure, you can retire. Just don't tell anybody. Or they'll think I'm setting precedence. So you can move around with a lot of autonomy and still function inside of the system of slavery because everybody you know is caught in the same system. And so the way out of it is not to write a proclamation and it's not to say a prayer and it's not to stand up and quote a verse as if it were some kind of bulletproof shield. The way out of slavery is a journey (laughs) from the deep south to the Ohio River. There's a day when you decide to leave, but you are not there. And the worst thing you can do is declare yourself free when you are still in the thick of slavery. You are lying and you know you are. It doesn't line up. And so the fourth thing, and then I'll get to preaching. is that even after we are free, we have to go through an unlearning process. You can't just throw these ideas out the upstairs window. You got to coax them down the stairs a step at a time. You got to unlearn some things that has been bred into you by systems and power structures and people that you've trusted, good people, religious people, people that you love. You have to unlearn some of that. Well, all of this has me wondering about ways in which you and I might still be slaves. Are you starting to wonder? The most obvious way is addictions. We begin with a series of actions designed to produce happiness or freedom or pleasure or belonging. And pretty soon our behavior becomes so wrapped up in those practices that we no longer have them. They have us. All of a sudden, our free will that we can do whatever we want starts to erode our freedom and it eats away at our dignity. And we can walk around as we often do and we can say, I am nobody's slave because I can do anything I want to do. But it's because we have too small a definition of slavery. Slavery is not a shackle. It's control. 
And just because the thing controlling us doesn't have a face, we can still be caught in it. But there are other ways. Some of us this morning are slaves to success. You thought failure was dangerous. Success will get you killed. What happens is you find a role somewhere in an organization and you succeed. And when you do, the organization discovers it and they start to affirm it. And you would think that would be enough, but it's not. It's like throwing gas on a fire to put it out. All it does is feed it. So you end up running from one accomplishment to the next. And it's because you don't know who you are. Look, man, I love you. But some of us don't know who we are. From the moment we were born, we have been chasing something we thought somebody else wants us to be. <laughs> They're not even that. And some of you are running after it with all you got. Somewhere in your mind, you've got this image. If I can just get there, then I will have made it. And you're slaves. Because when you get there, it moves, it's gone. Some of us this morning are slaves to approval, affirmation. I don't know how we got that way. Somebody more educated than I can maybe help you figure that out. But I know that we can and often do chase the approval of other people for an entire lifetime. We're waiting for someone to tell us we are beautiful or smart or powerful or better. In the back of our minds, there's a voice that says, you are a nobody and you will always be a nobody until you prove to me you're somebody. The problem is there is nothing that proves it and you never know who to prove it to. And so you just run around seeking other people's approval. And sometimes you... Give things to people you should not give them. You talk about yourself incessantly. You will not admit when you are wrong. You cannot say no as easily as you say yes because you are hoping someday you'll get approval. Those are systems and they lock you in. And we can say this morning, we <laughs> have God as a father. We have never been slaves to anyone. And Jesus says, there's a different kind of slavery. If you had God as a father, you would do what your father did. And you would love like your father loved. All right. Now it's time to finish with a sermon. The way out of this, I believe, is Abraham. Somewhere in Jesus' conversation with the Jews who had already started to believe in him, 
he mentioned Abraham, or they did. They said, we are Abraham's father. We've never been slaves of anyone. Jesus said, essentially, you're right. Abraham's descendants are not slaves, only you're not Abraham's descendants. Because if you were, then you would do what Abraham did. What that tells me is that the way out of slavery, however you get there, begins with the life of Abraham. Most of us know that Abraham was an old guy waiting for a son. What we may not know is that while he was waiting for a son, he was on his way to becoming one. From the best of my knowledge, his understanding of God shifted in his lifetime. It started out as a seeker. He came from the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans. That's where they worshiped the moon god. They built the ziggurat, the third story, was 75 stairs up, has the temple to the moon god. So they had a clear picture of some kind of deity that just didn't know who he was. And probably like all other deities in Abraham's day, there were many of them. And their identities were wrapped up in humanity. They were humans times a hundred. And one of them didn't run everything, but there was one the top of the ziggurat that must have got Abram's attention. His daddy did the best thing. He left that land, and before he could finish his journey, he died. So Abraham started out with this idea of a God who was a force, a supernatural being, a mind, a principle, something to be understood. We grasp him primarily with our minds. Some of you are still caught in this mode, aren't you? You love theology. And ideas about God. Till one day you wake up and realize there's somebody there on the other end of that idea. And he is a mind and a person all his own. Mmm. That's a transformation. You're leaving seekerhood. It's time for another mode. From there, Abram goes into the role of a servant. God is a monarch. He's a king. He's a sovereign. He's a Lord. And we are all his servants. And so the moment God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, he hears we better have a son. <laughs> he turns a promise into a law. We better get busy and do what God told us he was going to do. This is our job, that servant language. <laughs> God says, I will sanctify you. And you here, I better get sanctified. I will take away that sin, and you here, I better quit that sin. That's servant language. Some of us in the room this morning are trapped in servant language. It's not bad, but you're stuck there. You think about being owned by God more than you are related to him. 
You even speak of being used by God as if your function was determined solely by the one who owns you. You speak of salvation as being justified more than you speak of being adopted. <laughs> when you pray, it's always, Lord, never, Father. You even think of heaven as if it were some eternal, wait for it, reward. You got visions of stars on your crown. Never occurred to you heaven is an inheritance. Every son or daughter has one. Some of y'all been trying to earn what he's written in the will. By the end of his life, Abraham leaves the servant and he becomes a son. <sighs> At the sacrifice of Isaac, he understands his identity as a son. Now, here's what I'm thinking, you guys. Some of us, most of us have moved out of servanthood into, out of seekerhood into servanthood, and we are stuck in servanthood. We never got on to being sons and daughters of God. I don't think you ever leave them behind. I'm not asking you to leave and say, well, Pastor Steve said, I am not a servant of God. That is not what I said. I said, I want you to read servant verses like sons and daughters, when in fact, y'all been reading sons and daughter verses like servants. So I'm just asking you to change your operating system. And I'm not telling you to throw out metaphors and verses because they don't fit. I'm just saying maybe those verses that you've been clinging to are not the main ones. There's others. And those are the norm and the Bible and you and God and your walk with him as a whole can be explained in far more wonderful terms. Listen, church, there is a reason God calls himself a father. There is a reason being saved is called born again. There is a reason the second member of the Trinity is called the son that he was born and did not appear, that he grew in wisdom and stature just like you. There's a reason he is called a joint heir. It's whole father language. My journey and yours is often personal. It begins with questions. Let me put the questions that have guided me on the screen. What I hope you might do is write them down. I'm not going to hand them to you. And I hope that you might journal on these questions or that you might have conversations with people in your group. And if that's too large, 
one or two others. What image comes to mind when I hear the word God or think about him? Where did I get that image? Better yet, where did they get it? And how sure am I that it's right? Three, what is that image doing to me? What effect does it have on my personality, my religion, my relationships, my work? And four, what effect am I having on it? What am I doing to get in front of it? What am I doing to inform it, confront it, lead it? Imagine for a moment that you are gathered like the people in Galveston, Texas. You've been working all week in your fields. Imagine someone comes to a balcony, looks over a sea of faces, and says to you something you can hardly believe. Everything in your being wants to own it but you can't help but hear it as a slave. So at least this morning, imagine that in these words, God means far more than you ever thought. Would you bow your heads? To all who believed him and accepted him, God gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. That's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman subject to law. He sent his son to buy freedom for us who were slaves so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Father, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, everything he has belongs to you. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Dear friends, we are even now God's children. But he's not yet shown us what we will be when Christ appears. Yet we know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Since then you have this new life. Since you are children of God, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And think about things in heaven, not things on earth. For your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ... <coughs> 
who is your life is revealed, you also will share in his glory.